Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of polished rice. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about sake. That's for how it's pronounced, right? Sake. Right? For sake, for, sake. Forsaken. What? 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 What are you talking about? What are you talking about? How about sake, the topic of our episode. I believe it's pronounced sake. Oh, okay. I get it. Um, yeah, yeah, we're talking about sake. Not sake, not sake. Sake. <laughs> sake bomb. <laughs> now, in episode 17, we talked about alcohol in Japan. We talked about drinking culture, all the stuff surrounding that. Uh, and we, we mentioned sake briefly, but today we're doing a whole episode about it because sake is great, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to know about it. There sure is. Sake is sometimes referred to as Japanese rice wine, an alcoholic beverage. It is. You know, I'm glad we chose this topic because I've looked at the sake section at plenty of liquor stores, mm -hmm. and you see a lot of words popping up, you know? Yep. Junmai and Ginjo and Dai Ginjo, and I always wondered, like, what, what do those words mean? I don't know what that means. Right. I like sake, but I feel like I don't drink it as often as I should for how much I like it. I don't know. I just, I go into a liquor store and I just like kind of wander towards the beer. It just doesn't like occur to me to go check out the sake very often. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff over there though. You got the clear ones, you got the cloudy ones. And, uh, you know, by the end of this episode, you're going to be experts on what's the difference between all these and how do you pick out a good sake? Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the basics... We said sake is an alcoholic beverage from Japan made from pretty simple ingredients. You just got rice, water, yeast, and koji mold. That delicious koji. Yeah, we've been talking about koji a lot lately, I feel like. Yeah, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've probably heard of koji. We talked about it a lot in the soy sauce and miso episodes. Very important mold in Japanese food. One of those friendly molds, the ones that aren't trying to kill you. <laughs> sake is usually between 15 to 16 percent alcohol so around the same level as wine maybe a little bit higher than the average wine mm -hmm. sake is smooth and sweet sometimes even a bit creamy and if you haven't tried it you totally should if you're uh if you know it's legal for you to be drinking alcohol yeah i love the creamy sake yeah interesting note that sake is not called sake in japan sake is usually referred to as nihonshu in japan which translates to japanese alcoholic drink mm -hmm. they do use the word sake though in japan in a different way right yeah it's kind of like alcohol right yeah it can refer to any alcoholic beverage i remember when i did the trip recap of my trip to okinawa i talked about how i got this soda that was alcoholic, and I didn't realize it until I started drinking it. But, you know, when I looked on the label, when I finally realized there was alcohol, it actually said sake on there. <laughs> Even though it's, you know, it's soda. Sake it's soda. So it's sake. That sounds good, though. Yeah, it was good. They had a couple types, too. They had like a cola, and then it was like a, I want to say it was like a ginger ale, maybe, or something. Interesting. Ginger, ginger beer, I guess. Interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm totally getting that wrong. But anyway, 
Last fun fact I have for the intro here is that sake is also the national beverage of Japan. As it should be. Yeah. My fun fact, October 1st is the official sake day of Japan, but it's also World Sake Day too, so everyone can celebrate sake on October 1st. You know, when I was researching, I read that two days too late. I'm like, oh man, I just missed it. Yeah, yeah. That's too bad. We did miss official World Sake Day this year. Yeah. But we're going to make up for that today. Yeah, we're celebrating a little bit late. (laughs) Also, I found it interesting that um, a sake brewer is called Toji, and it's a very respected job in Japanese society. It's almost like uh, considered an artisan. It's on the same level of like, oh, I'm a painter or I'm a musician. Like I brew sake, very respected. Yeah, yeah, it really is an art. And we're going to dig into how it's made and you're going to find out about all the, all the ways that you can make your sake special and differentiate it from other types of sake. And there's a lot of stuff that you can do with it. Time to talk about the history of sake. This gets a little murky. People have been drinking alcohol for a long, long time, but when did it become what we know today as sake is a little hard to tell. Yeah. What was the earliest evidence of somewhat modern day sake that you saw, Jason? Well, I don't know how close this is to modern sake. It's actually fairly far from modern sake, I think, but I I just wanted to mention it because I think it's fascinating and fun. Okay. So there's something similar to sake. It was first made in China around 500 BC. And at this time, villagers were chewing up the rice, maybe some nuts as well, rice and nuts. They're chewing it up and then they all spit it into this communal tub and then let that ferment. And then you got, you know, an alcoholic beverage made from rice. So that's sort of close to sake, but it was thick, like much more solid than modern sake, perhaps even more solid than liquid is what I saw. Like it's chunky stuff. How you doing there, Paul? Not well. I was hoping you wouldn't bring this up. <laughs> I just, That's so I love that. gross. I don't know. To me, it's all cultural. If I grew up doing that, I'd be, I'd be munching down on the alcohol mush like everybody else. But if that was your only way to get alcohol, you'd do it, right? I'd probably be sober. <laughs> If I had to chew my alcohol, I don't know. Well, I guess not everybody is like you, Paul. I say that like six months in, I'd be like, all right, let's go. (laughs) Alcohol kills all the germs anyway. You're fine, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. So let's get to uh, alcohol in Japan. What's the furthest back mention of alcohol in Japan you have? I mean, alcohol goes way, way back. The sources I was looking at, seem to point to something similar to what we would call sake today emerging in the Nara period, around the 700s. Okay. I mean, who knows how long ago they were making some form of alcohol in Japan, but I did see that the first mention of alcohol in Japan in written text was from the 3rd century. There was a Chinese book that talked about the Japanese drinking and dancing. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Japanese have uh, liked to drink for a long time. Okay, so the Nara period, that's around, starting around the 8th century, right? Yeah. Around that time, alcohol was also mentioned in the Kojiki. We've talked about this book before, one of those really old Japanese historical texts. 
And so, yeah, I saw that historians would probably call this the Nara period where we would see the origins of quote-unquote true sake. Because this is actually when it started being made with that koji mold. They weren't chewing up the rice and spitting it anymore. Yeah. By the Heian period, sake was being used for religious ceremonies, court festivals, and even drinking games. But it was mostly an aristocratic thing. Seems like a, a trend for most of the things when they first you know, become popular in Japan. They start out with the aristocrats and the Buddhist monks, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, the government had a monopoly on sake for quite a while. And then in the 10th century, temples and shrines begin to brew sake as well. And they eventually became the main centers of production for sake for about the next 500 years. So it starts in the court, spreads to the temples and shrines, and all the elites get to drink and have fun. Yeah, and that connection between sake and religion is, is pretty strong in Japan even today. You'll see at a lot of shrines, you might notice like big stacks of sake barrels. Paul, have you seen that? Yep. Those are sent to the shrines from sake producers around the country as offerings to the kami. So still a lot of religious stuff going on with sake. Mm -hmm. So during the Meiji Restoration, which began in 1868, the new government passed these new laws that basically allowed pretty much anybody to make sake. And within one year, around 30,000 sake breweries popped up. That's a crazy number. Yeah. And the government noticed that all these breweries were popping up and they decided, you know, we got to take advantage of this. Like there's a lot of money, money to be made if we start taxing these breweries, right? Mm-hmm. And not only did they start taxing it, it's, it almost seemed like they started pushing sake, like they wanted it to become a really big thing because in 1904, they opened the Sake Brewing Research Institute. Around the same time, they banned home brewing because you can't tax sake that's brewed at home. Yep. And the government started running sake tasting competitions, which is kind of hard to imagine, like a government-sponsored drinking event you know <laughs> yeah that does seem a little odd right they also pushed the use of enamel coated steel tanks for making sake this was a new development in sake production and there are a couple of reasons for this one is that these are easy to clean and more hygienic than the wooden barrels that they were using before that but also when you make sake in wooden barrels a fair amount of that sake is lost to evaporation and again, you can't tax sake that just evaporates away into the air, can you, Paul? You maybe could, but it'd be uh, how, how would you difficult. do that? You just calculate the average loss and then say, oh, 20 gallons you brewed? Actually, you need to pay us taxes for 30 gallons because you probably lost 10 gallons. But then the brewers are like, whoa, 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 well, uh, the temperature was different than it normally is. We didn't get that much evaporation this year. Oh, so you um, got more in the past? You owe us back taxes for last year. No, no, no. That's <laughs> not right. I don't know. Seems like it could get messy. No, the tax numbers are crazy, though. I, I did not know this, and it absolutely blew my mind. But in 1898, all of the Japanese government's revenue, 5% of it almost came from sake tax, which is a massive percent. But that's just getting started. By the time of the Russo-Japanese War, that time you're talking about 1904 to 1905, 
when the government really started pushing sake, the Japanese tax revenue was 30% coming from sake. Yeah. That's that's unbelievable. Totally insane. Like, the country would have collapsed if they stopped selling sake. (laughs) And today, they still make a lot of money. Today, they're like, only 2% of government income comes from sake. But literally, from taxing one drink, they still get 2% of their revenues? That's a huge number. Yeah. Even today, like that's that's incredible. Yeah. Although when they say sake, they might be just talking about all alcohol, but that's still a huge number. It is. Good old sin taxes. I'm sure they don't call them sin taxes in Japan, but it's the same idea as here. Oh, you know, cigarettes taxed like crazy, alcohol taxed like crazy, more than everything else. Yeah. For a second, you're like sin tax. Why are we talking about grammar all of a sudden? <laughs> You are a grammar guy. I suppose that's where your mind would go. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think about sin space taxes very often, I guess. So due to all this taxation that was going on in the the early 1900s, most of those 30,000 breweries that had opened really quickly in that span of a year, most of those closed. And of the ones that survived, most of those were owned by these wealthy landowners that already like were producing a bunch of rice just to sell as food. So whatever rice they had left over at the end of the season, they can just turn that into sake. And you know, it's it's easy to survive as a sake brewer when you have this whole other rice business to kind of prop that part up, right? And most of those breweries are even still around today. Yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense. Like I've got some extra rice. Let's make alcohol like that. Mm -hmm. uh, It's very efficient. Yeah. Something that occurred to me, though, and this is just speculation. I didn't find anything spelling this out exactly, but Paul, see what you think of this theory. So the only brewers that were left over were these wealthy landowners, right? Doesn't that seem like those are the kind of people that would have close ties to the government? Couldn't this be uh, mutually beneficial if the government was like, oh, we want to tax the crap out of sake? And these wealthy landowners are like, well, you know, it kind of helps us if you tax everybody enough to shut down all these smaller breweries. You see where I'm going? I I see where you're going and I love it. I love it. Corruption between the elites and the government, 100%, I believe, everything you say with no evidence. I don't care. (laughs) Again, (laughs) speculation, but... I mean, it makes sense. You you squeeze out the small guy. You know, buddy, buddy, get your politician to go squeeze out the small guy and all of a sudden politician's got a cozy job when he retires. I don't know. That's how it works here, I guess. But maybe I'm just being cynical, but it seemed like something that uh, would make sense. You know, our ideas are just shaped by the world we live in. Yeah. So what about World War II, Paul? What happened then? Well, there was a rice shortage. They started running out of food, so they strongly discouraged the brewing of alcohol with rice. During the war, at least. Post-war, breweries slowly started recovering. Mm -hmm. But during the war, when there were those rice shortages, a lot of brewers decided to kind of make up for that lost rice by adding pure alcohol and glucose to increase their yields. And actually, some of the sake that was made at that time didn't have any rice in it at all. Interesting. They would still call it sake. And as we will see... Even these days, there are some other ingredients, some, uh, some other types of alcohol that are often added to sake. But these days, there's always rice. 
Yes. Always rice as a base. True. But that idea of like adding in other things to increase your yield kind of reminded me of the soy sauce episode. Similar kind of idea. Remember they were using the uh, hydrolyzed soy protein, I believe it was. That cheaper way of making uh, soy sauce, they call it like, you were talking about it at your, at your work, the amino acids stuff that they sell instead of... Oh yeah, they sell the amino acids as like a health alternative now when yeah. really it's just like cheap soy sauce. Yeah. Yeah, I like, do remember there being a cheaper way to make it. The cheapest, fastest way to make soy sauce. And even a lot of big soy sauce companies will mix in that stuff with their traditionally brewed soy sauce. Oh, this kind of reminded me of that. If you want yeah. to hear more about that, okay. episode 73 was all about soy sauce. Okay, so after World War II, like you said, sake breweries did slowly recover, but beer and wine actually started to overtake sake sales in Japan, and domestic sake production has been declining ever since the 1970s. But in contrast, consumption of sake all over the rest of the world has continually climbed over the last few decades. It's become increasingly popular uh, all over the place, really, except Japan. Yeah, they have sake breweries now in China, other parts of Southeast Asia, South America, North America, even Australia is making sake these days. I also thought it was cool that these days more breweries are going back to the older production methods. Kind of reminded me of like the recent popularity of craft beer, you know, people want craft sake, they want that artisan stuff, the best you can get. All right, Paul, let's learn how to make sake. Okay. Well, you got to start with the rice. Rice is pretty important. The rice used for brewing sake is called sakamai or sake rice. Or shuzo kotekimai, which means sake suitable for brewing sake. (laughs) Okay. There's at least 80 types of sake rice in Japan. Mm -hmm. So a wide variety of bases to choose from to start developing your flavors. Right. Now you might be wondering, is this the same kind of rice that people eat in Japan? No. For most sake, actually, yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You can make sake with table rice. You know, the same stuff that you buy to eat. However, if you want to make premium sake, which is only about a quarter of the sake industry, for that, you're going to want to use rice that has larger, stronger grains because it has to stand up to polishing. And that type of rice is grown specifically for making sake. It's, it's not considered to be very good to eat. Yeah, too big and chewy. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned polishing the rice. What's going on there, Paul? Uh, you're basically rubbing off the outer enamel of the grain because you want to get to the rich starches inside and the outside is coated in proteins and fats. And that's not the stuff you want to make the good alcohol. Exactly. So like when you start out with a grain of rice, I mean, the the most basic grain is like brown rice, right? It's got Mm -hmm. that brown shell on the outside. And then once you get that bran off, then you got white rice. But for sake, you want to keep grinding it and shaving away a bunch of the outer layers of the white rice because the starch in the middle is actually what's going to turn into sugar and then into alcohol. Yes. And it's all about getting that alcohol, right, Paul? Yep. Gotta get those pure flavors. So this is one of the ways that sake can actually be categorized. 
based on the rice polishing ratio. The more you polish the rice down, the more of that nice starchy center you're going to have. So the more premium, the more high grade that sake will be. That little starch pocket in the center of the grain of rice is called a shinpaku. So you want to get down to the shinpaku to make your premium sake. So this, this premium high-grade sake is going to be more expensive, of course, because it takes more rice to make an equal amount of sake. Mm-hmm. But I did see some places mention that this doesn't necessarily mean that it's like super high-quality sake. No, it doesn't. You shouldn't equate this, like how polished the rice is with how good the sake is necessarily, mm-hmm. because you do get flavors from the outer part of the rice. So leaving a little bit of that can add more depth to the flavors or more to your palate. So it's just different styles of making sake rather than thinking about it better or worse based on the level that it's polished. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so many different factors that go into what that final product is going to taste like. And I mean, at the end of the day, what really matters is what you enjoy, you know? Yeah, exactly. The best, the best sake for you is the sake that you like drinking. Yeah, go taste some and you'll find which one you like. Mm-hmm. So this part kind of reminded me of like how whiskey, whiskey that's aged longer is going to be more expensive, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. You could have a whiskey that's aged for a really long time that just isn't good. Yep, absolutely. Go listen to episode 78 to hear more about Japanese whiskey. Okay, so you got your rice. But you're also going to need water, right? Absolutely. And you can't just use any water. You can't use ditch water, right, Paul? You could, but if you're trying to make a good product, that would not make sense. Yeah. You got to get the best water possible. Yeah. Undesirable minerals in the water can cause discoloration. They can change the flavor. But there are also desirable minerals that you might want to look for because they're ones that can interact with the yeast to make it work faster. So, yeah, the water is super important, and there are actually regions in Japan specifically known for having great water for sake production. That's true. You don't want iron. You don't want manganese. Those are said to discolor or add bad flavors. But if you find a place that has some potassium, magnesium in the water, those are said to help during the fermentation process and considered more desirable. There's a particular water source called Miyamizu that was found to produce very high quality sake and it attracted many producers to that region. And even today, it's uh, in Hyogo Prefecture and they have the most sake breweries there of any prefecture. Cool. People are following the water. The rice you can easily import from anywhere, but it's hard to import large quantities of the perfect water that you need. Mm -hmm. So it makes more sense to plop down your brewery right near the best water source you can find. Yeah. And you need massive quantities of water too. It's not only the water that's going to end up as a part of the sake. You know, you need to wash your rice. You need to polish your rice. All that takes a bunch of water and you don't want to use bad water for any part of the process. Yeah. Typically, most breweries use well water rather than surface water. But some even use tap water these days and filter it or even add back in certain minerals to try to get the recipe just right. So our other super important ingredient is that koji mold I mentioned at the beginning. 
or Aspergillus oryzae. And what this is, is an enzyme-secreting fungus. Like I said, this is what's used in miso and soy sauce. And also, like I said, you might be thinking, well, isn't mold bad for you? Mold is like, you're not supposed to eat moldy bread, right? Why is this mold good for you? Well, this type is actually unable to produce toxins. That's why I like to call it a friendly mold. Yeah, that's awesome. Incapable of being mean to us. Yeah. Is man's best friend the dog or this mold? I think it's debatable. Why not both? Dogs can't get you drunk, and dogs can hurt you. They hurt people, like, fairly often. So, I'm calling it now. Koji mold, man's best friend. Okay. You got it. You got an argument there. Thank you. So, during the brewing process, you take steamed rice, and you add the koji keen to it, and that produces koji. So, koji keen, that's a new term, I think. I believe koji keen refers specifically to those spores. And the koji is like the mold that grows from the koji keen. So under warm and moist conditions, the koji spores germinate and release enzymes that convert the rice starches into glucose, an important part of the process. Right, because you can't turn starch directly into alcohol. The starch needs to turn into glucose, which is a sugar, and then the glucose is fermented by the yeast into alcohol. So this brings me to an important point. Paul, you mentioned at the beginning that sake is often referred to as rice wine, right? Yes. But actually, the process is closer to the process of making beer than it is to the process of making wine. Yep. Because when you're making wine, you already have a bunch of sugar because grapes are full of sugar, right? Right. So that can get turned directly into alcohol. But when you're making sake or beer, you have to convert the starches into sugar and then it's fermented. Yep. Okay, so now we're at the fermentation part of this process, and this is a three-step process called sandan shikomi. The first step is called hatsuzoe, and it involves mixing the steamed rice with water, koji, and yeast. Yeah, and once you mix those, you're going to have a mash called moromi. Moromi mash? And that is the same word they use for the mash when they're making soy sauce. This is basically the same thing. And then you're going to leave that mixture for a day to let the yeast multiply. So the second step is called nakazoe, and it involves the addition of a second batch of steamed rice, water, and koji. Yep, so that's on the third day. And then a couple days later comes the third step, tomezoe, which is add a third batch of the koji rice and water. And then you're going to let that whole thing ferment for up to two weeks. And this is where you might take that extra step of adding some distilled brewer's alcohol to the mash. So this, this kind of goes back to where we were talking about how in World War II, people started adding things to increase the yield of their sake when there were those rice shortages, right? But there are actually multiple reasons you might want to do this. Like, some companies that are making real cheap sake could use this as a way to get more sake for less money. But the addition of this brewer's alcohol, which is just neutral alcohol, basically, that doesn't necessarily mean that this sake is cheap or lower quality. A lot of brewers actually add small amounts of alcohol specifically to change the aroma and flavor profiles in desirable ways. 
I read that you can do this to make sake this lighter on the palate. It's going to be a little less complex. It's kind of a, an easier sake to drink. Maybe you think of it as like a session sake, something you can drink throughout the meal and it's not going to overpower other things. Yeah, it's interesting that something that started as a necessity during a time of hardship eventually developed as part of the art form. Mm-hmm. And it's used very well by master brewers to create some really unique flavors that they couldn't otherwise get. Mm-hmm. So one unique thing about sake is that it uses parallel fermentation. So the starch is turning to glucose as the glucose is turning to alcohol. There's no two separate steps. It's all done during the fermentation process altogether, whereas many other liquors, it's done separately. Mm-hmm. That is true. So once this fermentation part is done, you're, you're getting there. You're almost to the end of the process. You're just going to press that liquid out of the solids, probably going to pasteurize and filter it. You might also have to dilute it down to 15% or so where it's bottled because when you're done with the fermentation, the alcohol level might be a little higher than that. And then boom, you got sake. Now the last step before bottling and selling that sake is you're probably going to want to let it mature for a while. That maturation process can take around 9 to 12 months and then it's going to be ready to sell and to drink. So if you listen to that soy sauce episode, you might notice that this process is pretty much the exact same thing. You're just using rice instead of the soybeans and wheat. Taking these notes, I was like, I swear I've written all this stuff down before. (laughs) Yeah, it seemed very familiar. So I think it's time to talk about some of the different types of sake. Um, First, I think we should talk about Junmai versus Aruten sake. Yeah, I think those are the two big main categories. Uh, That's probably the easiest way to understand all the different types of sake is to group them into these two. And these categories have to do with whether or not that brewer's alcohol has been added. So on the Junmai side, this is the pure rice style sake. It is made with only rice, water, yeast, and koji. You can't add anything else to it. Mm-hmm. The other side, aruten sake, is a category where you can add some of that brewer's alcohol. And when you're looking at a bottle of sake on the shelf and you want to figure out which one of these it is, I don't think you're really going to see sake labeled as aruten. They're not going to advertise that they're adding extra alcohol, you know? Yeah, it's the absence of seeing the Junmai on there that lets you know. Right. So you'll want to look for that word Junmai, or I even saw somewhere, it doesn't say Junmai, but it'll say somewhere on the bottle, made only with water, rice, koji, yeast. Yeah. Okay, so within these two categories, there's also going to be a range of grades based on... How polished the rice is. Exactly, like we said before. So this more highly milled sake is considered to be lighter, more refined. You might have fruitier flavors in there. So if that's what you're looking for, the very top grade that you could look for is called Daiginjo. And that would be 50% or less of the original rice remaining. Correct. So you have to polish away at least 50% of each grain of rice. You got that beautiful starchy core. Mm -mm. And so 
you can see this word, daiginjo, on both sides of that. You can have a junmai daiginjo, or you can have a non-junmai daiginjo, right? Yep. The next grade down under daiginjo is just ginjo. And that's 60% or less of the rice remaining. Mm-hmm. And again, you can have the normal ginjo, or you can have the junmai ginjo. Now, past this point, it gets a little more complicated. If you've milled your rice, you polished your rice less than ginjo level, so more than 60% of the grain of rice is left, on the junmai, the pure rice side, there are no other special designations. Everything else is just called junmai sake. There aren't other categories of rice polishing levels. However, on the aruten side, the side where you're adding some additional brewer's alcohol, there's one more special designation called honjozo, which is where you've milled the rice down to 70% or less. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are, are we, we're, we're still good, right? This is all making sense? I believe so. So there's one more word I want to introduce, and this is for sake that has added alcohol that doesn't have any milling requirements at all. You could use the entire grain of rice if you wanted to. This is the lowest grade of sake called futsushu. Now, all of the other types of sake we described that aren't futsushu are considered special designation sake, or tokute meishoshu. But this lowest grade, futsushu, literally just translates to like ordinary sake. It's just basic sake. There's nothing special about it. You might also call it table sake. It's just your normal everyday stuff, right? And actually, about 78% of the sake produced in Japan is this stuff. The premium sake is, is a pretty small percentage of all the sake that's made. And it's a relatively new thing, too. It's only been around for about the last 50 years. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much what you need to know if you're looking at grades of sake. I hope that makes sense. If you need to visualize it, if you're more of a visual learner, if you just Google sake grades and look at the images, there are a lot of good like infographics out there that'll kind of they'll have a little graph for you. It makes it all pretty clear, I think. Yeah, that's what I was looking at. It was easier than trying to read it all and understand. Yeah. I had to kind of compare a bunch of them though. It seemed like they weren't lining up perfectly or some of them introduced other terms. Yeah, mm. right. They're all a little bit different. Um, yeah. Exactly what they cover. But if you keep in mind those words, Junmai, Daiginjo, Ginjo, you'll, you'll probably be pretty well prepared to pick out a nice bottle of sake. Mm-hmm. So those are grades that we've talked about. But there are other things that you can do to sake to make them interesting and special. Right, Paul? Yeah. There's Genshu, which is undiluted sake. So sake usually comes out a little bit closer to around, what, 20% alcohol or so. So this doesn't get diluted down and hangs around that 20% range. Mm -hmm. You want strong sake, look for Genshu sake. Uh, another thing you might see on the label is tokubetsu, which just basically means special. It's special sake, which isn't super specific. What, what does that mean? What does special mean? Well, the label actually has to tell you what is special about it. If it says tokubetsu, there should also be some other thing on there explaining why it's tokubetsu. 
For example, maybe it was made using even a lower milling rate than what's legally required. Maybe you find a tokubetsu junmai daiginjo that's like milled down to 40% instead of the legally required 50. Uh, one of my favorites is nigori, which means cloudy, and it refers to a type of sake that's coarsely filtered, allowing a portion of the rice sediment to be left in the finished brew. So I used to always think of this as unfiltered sake. It's not quite unfiltered. They filter like, out the chunks. It's like, like less filtered sake. Yeah, you're not going to find like, you're not going to be chewing on anything in that sake. Right, right. <laughs> it's just kind of like milky white with a smooth, creamy texture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I very much like it. I like it too. It seems like it has a really nice mouth feel. Like it feels just creamy. Uh, sparkling sake is a thing that's pretty self-explanatory. It's just sake with carbonation. There's koshu, which is aged sake. Uh, a lot of sake doesn't age well, but some does, and they can age it for a long time. Usually it turns darker and has a honeyed flavor after a while. Mm-hmm. You can actually get unpasteurized sake. Most sake is pasteurized, but if it's not, you would call that namazake. One that caught my eye was taruzake, which is sake aged in wooden barrels or wooden casks. Mm, yeah. Um, they tend to use sugi, which is also known as Japanese cedar. And these they often use to ceremonially open a building or a business or for certain parties. They go to taruzake. Well, Paul, I think it's time. About time. We're going to taste some sake. Woohoo! Look at all this sake. We have three bottles between us here, and we're going to taste them. Now, um, first thing I want to mention is that each of these bottles has an SMV on there. Did you read about SMV, Paul? No. SMV is a sake meter value. So you're going to get a number. And this number tells you the density of the sake relative to water, which is going to give you an idea of how sweet or how dry the sake is. The higher the number, the drier the sake. The lower the number, the sweeter the sake. There's one simple way to kind of find a sake that uh, fits into your personal preference, perhaps. Okay, that's cool. All right, so like I said, we have three bottles. Let's start with, we're going to start with the lowest grade and work our way up. So this first one is one that I got uh, called Gekkeikan Nigori Sake. Pretty basic. Gekkeikan is the brand. And as we mentioned, Nigori Sake is that cloudy type, the roughly filtered sake. So I'll read a little bit from the bottle here. Sure. Gekkeikan Nigori Sake is roughly filtered, milky, with refreshing fruity flavor. Shake well and serve chilled. I shook it, and it is chilled. It is made with only rice, water, and yeast. So it's Junmai. Exactly. However, it doesn't have a specific grade on there. So I'm guessing this is probably milled less than down to 60%. There's more than 60% of the rice grain remaining, is, is my guess here. Okay. Otherwise, they would advertise it. So the sake meter value on here is negative 23 which is very sweet. Like, this is really on the sweet end of the spectrum. Okay. Uh, it's 10% alcohol, which is a little less than 
the average sake? It's a little low for sake. You ready to give it a try, Paul? Yes. All right. I've been ready. Con pie, my friend. Mm. You can really feel the, uh, the milkiness of it. You get the, the little very fine rice solids in there. Yeah, it's kind of thick. It is quite sweet as well. Yeah, definitely very sweet. What do you and, think? And I think I can tell that it's only 10%. Like, you're not getting the big uh, kick of alcohol flavor mm-hmm. from this. But a little bit. It's there. Um, Not my favorite sake I've ever tried. Hmm. It is a little sweeter than I would prefer, I think. It's like a little more sweet than I'd maybe like. And it could be a little stronger. Mm-hmm. But well, not bad. I, yeah. So... Paul and I didn't really coordinate on picking out our sake, so he also grabbed Onigori sake because we're both fans of that style of mm-hmm. sake. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us about the bottle that you have there? This is Momokawa, and it is a Junmai Ginjo sake. Nice. So Junmai means there's none of that brewer's alcohol added, and the Ginjo part means that it was the rice grains were ground down to 60%, right? Yep. And it is Nigori, as we mentioned. I'll uh, read a little bot- love the bottle description here. A partially filtered sake with creamy, integrated tropical flavors and anise highlights. This Nigori pairs easily with a range of spicy foods like Thai or curry, yet becomes a decadent surprise with chocolate. Ooh, sake and chocolate. I never thought about that. Interesting. Brewed with time-honored techniques and a pioneering spirit. It's also 18% alcohol, almost twice as much alcohol as the last one. So this oh, should be... maybe that's what caught my eye. <laughs> so both Nigori, but uh, this one is a higher grade and much higher alcohol content. It'll be interesting to see the difference here. Yeah. I also want to note that this one is a bit darker color than the first one. The first one was Pretty close to white, like a tiny bit off-white. This one's almost more yellowish, almost a brownish maybe even. Much less sweet. Yep, definitely. You can taste the alcohol more, of course. Yep. I feel like the particulates in there are a little finer. Yeah, definitely. I can't uh, feel them as much when I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. I dig it. What do you think? I like it. It's smooth. It's creamy. I can taste the alcohol, but not too much. And a little bit of sweetness there, but not really like a lot. Like I feel like I could have a bit of this and not be like overpowered by sweetness. Yeah. It's still pretty sweet for me. I don't know. I'm curious. I'm really curious to see this compared to the last one we have here. Yeah. I think I'm more into sweet in general than you are. That could be. Yeah. Mountain Dew ruined me <laughs> as, a, as a child. All right, ready to hear about the last bottle here? Yes. This is, the brand is Hakutsuru, which I remember actually when I lived in LA, you know, we had a lot of great Asian markets out there. And I remember getting a bottle of sake from this brand when we lived out there. And I really liked it. Like I got this bottle a few times because I don't know, I didn't know anything about sake at the time. I just knew that I liked it better than most sake. So I don't know, brand I have a little experience with. Uh, so this is called Shoune Junmai Dai Ginjo. It even says under that premium, because this is premium stuff. This is the highest grade 
of sake that you can get. Yeah, we're talking 50% or less of the rice remaining. Mm -hmm. And the Junmai, of course, means no added alcohol. Uh, So this is from Kobe, Japan. I'll read a little details from the box here. Using only the finest rice, Yamada Nishiki, and Nara's famed spring water from Mount Roko, Shoune, has been brewed as the supreme of Japanese sake. Paul the Supreme. Okay. This graceful Japanese sake with fruity scents and velvety smoothness can be enjoyed chilled or at room temperature. So we chilled all three of these uh, just to have a good baseline, you know, have them all kind of at a comparable temperature. Other notes here, this one is 15.5% alcohol by volume. Oh, okay. I think that's pretty much all we need to know about it. You ready to drink some? Yep. Iki no me. You go ahead. <laughs> yeah, not with the good stuff. Wow. Very That's a different. Com- completely different character. Wow, yeah. It's almost like, I don't know, it's much lighter. It's this not- is clear like water because it's been filtered very well. It's just incredibly smooth. Yeah, it's like... Like 15%, but I like almost don't taste the alcohol. I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, you know, I realized I was reading off of the box, but there actually is a little bit more detail on the bottle here. As for the SMV, the sake meter value, this one has a plus two. And that first one had a minus 23. So this one's much drier. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I feel more dryness of this. Mm-hmm. Feels like a dry white wine to me. Not very sweet at all. Yeah. I like this one a lot. Get a little hints of fruit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Somehow it just, I don't know if it's the Daiginjo or maybe it's because we're comparing Nigori to this, you know, perfectly clear one, but it just tastes very like clean and fresh. And like, I feel like I can get, a, I can really get that high quality water <laughs> coming through. Like it just tastes like, I don't know, simple and clean somehow. Yeah. You can almost taste the crisp mineral spring water that it was made from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say it's my favorite too. I'd say we went in order. This is my favorite. The last one we did was my second favorite. The first one we did was my least favorite. Yeah. Which probably corresponds to what we paid for them. <laughs> I was going to say, do you happen to remember about how much the uh, Momokawa was? $14, $15 mm. maybe? Because I did actually keep the receipt just so we could reference for our listeners so they might know. So this this highest grade stuff, this is a 720 milliliter bottle for $25.99 that I got. That's in American dollars. The the first one we tried, the Geke Kan Nigori, that's a 300 milliliter bottle for $749. So really, I mean, yeah, the, the higher grade one is quite a bit more expensive per volume than the other one, but not like double. Yeah, it's not crazy. Sake's not expensive. It's mm-hmm. a very affordable drink. Yeah, you're not going to be spending $100 a bottle or something like with uh, whiskey. You could do. All right, well, that was fun. Yeah. I suppose we should talk a little bit about drinking sake. Let's do that. So you mentioned that uh, we've served ourselves chilled sake. To give a fair experience between them all. But sake can be served chilled or at room temperature 
or even heated, depending on the preference of the drinker, the characteristics of the sake you happen to be drinking, or even the season that you're in. Mm-hmm. I saw that generally most premium sake, the elegant, nuanced, aromatic sakes, are recommended to be served slightly chilled or at room temp, because extreme temperatures in either direction can kind of cover up some of those flavors that you want to make sure are coming through. Yeah. And I like hot sake. Hot sake tends to be drunk more during the winter and with the lower grades of sake because some of the flavors or aromas may be lost, but hey, it wasn't the best sake to begin with, so less lost. Mm -hmm. The dry, robust, earthy, less aromatic sakes I saw could also be best served warm. If you're not sure, just look at the label. Usually there's a recommendation on there at what temperature it should be served at. And if your sake is heated and cools down, it could be reheated. Yeah, you're not going to damage it. What about your drinking vessel, Paul? What are you going to drink your sake out of? There's lots of options here. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, sake is drunk from small cups called choco. Yeah, you've probably seen the traditional sake set. You got the little cups, and then you got kind of this tall ceramic flask, which is called a tokuri, and you pour it out of the tokuri into the choco. Uh, And you can use a set like this, no matter what temperature you're serving your sake at. Uh, The the ceramic flask can help a little bit if you're heating it up, because the ceramic is heat resistant, right? Yeah, and it's nice that it helps keep it hot or chilled longer, because you're drinking out really small cups. So when you pour into the small cup, you drink it faster and more of the sake stays together so it can stay hot inside the ceramic or chilled inside the ceramic. Mm-hmm. Uh, also remember that it's customary to serve one another in Japan. You don't want to be pouring your own sake. You want to be serving your friends because as we talked about back in episode 17, that sense of community is a really big part of the drinking culture in Japan. Yep. One of my favorite ways to drink sake is drinking it out of a masu. Yeah, that's fun. Which is a box usually made of uh, hinoki or sugi, which is wood. It's like a wooden box cup. Mm-hmm. That is fun. I like the uh, the aroma of the wood kind of adds a little something to the experience, you know? Yeah, I, I love that. And the reason that sake is sometimes served in these is actually, it's a historical reference in a way. These little boxes were originally used for measuring rice in feudal Japan. Like that was the standard unit of measure. So, uh, so that's kind of fun. These days, it's pretty much just a, a gimmick that you see once in a while, but it's, it's still fun. And uh, yeah, it's just fun. <laughs> yeah, one Japanese custom is to put the masu on top of a saucer plate and you pour until it overflows to give a sense of generosity. You'll see it sometimes in a restaurant. That's interesting. I don't think I've seen it served quite that way. What I've seen is they'll have the box and then a shot glass inside the box, like kind of taller than the box. And then they pour the sake until the shot glass overflows into the box. I like the generosity of it. Yeah. You guys go to a bar sometimes and you're like, that looked like a quick pour. Yeah. I'm not sure I trust this glass. There's a very thick bottom to this glass. (laughs) Another drinking vessel that you might see is something called a sakazuki. 
which is a, a very shallow little saucer type thing. And I've seen these uh, a few times in Japan, but mostly it seems like they're used for ceremonial occasions. So like when I went to a temple in Shirakawago and they served me some doburoku, which is completely unfiltered sake that still has like chunks of rice in there. Uh, they served me that in one of these sakazuki. And I feel like I kind of embarrassed myself a little bit because I believe when you're being served sake in one of these, you're supposed to hold it in your hands as they pour. Yeah. But like, I didn't want to spill it, you know? So when she gave me the saucer, I set it down and she like picked it up and put it back into my hands. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, hold on to it if somebody's going to serve it to you that way. Um, I also saw these used at uh, the Geisha performance that I went to. They're playing a, a drinking game and... When you lost the drinking game and you had to drink, you drank out of one of these. Ah. They even had different sizes, actually. It was fun because when somebody lost, the audience got to, like, cheer for whichever size saucer they thought he should have to drink out of. Oh, wow. So it's like, no, give him the really big saucer. Make him get drunk. (laughs) Um, Another thing I want to mention is that despite the small size of a lot of these drinking vessels... You know, the traditional sake cups are not very big. Sake is not meant to be drank as a shot. You it don't just... sipped. It's yeah. like wine. Right. You don't just gulp it down in, in one. You don't ikinomi sake. <laughs> I just like ikinomi. It's fun. It's fun to say and fun to do, but... Yeah, not for sake. You want to savor that sake. Make it last. Lately, it's getting more common to see sake in wine glasses. Mm. There's even stemmed glasses made particularly for sake now. Though I don't know if I've ever seen any in person. Yeah, me either. That makes sense. If you're trying to serve it at a certain temperature, I think that's the whole purpose of a stemmed glass is you're not holding it in your hand, increasing the temperature. Right. Uh, Another thing you might want to consider when you're drinking sake is what food you're pairing your sake with. Paul mentioned his sake that he brought had recommendations for types of foods to pair it with. Sake generally goes great with traditional Japanese food, of course. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But the umami element from that koji means that sake is also great with other types of seafood dishes. It can bring out the flavors and vegetables. Depending on the type of sake, it could even be good with cheese or steaks. So I would recommend mixing and matching a bit. See what you like, you know? I saw Junmai recommended for oily foods. Hmm. That's a good pairing. Yes, that makes sense. Junmais are supposed to be more uh, complex. I forget what words they used exactly, but it feels like it could cut through the oil maybe a little bit. I don't know. Another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is how you store sake. How long does it last? Because, you know, we said that sake isn't generally aged the way that wine is. You know, it's matured by the brewer But once it's bottled, it's considered to be at its best right when you buy it. So you don't want to let your sake sit around for too long. I saw that it's best to drink it within one year of when it was bottled or up to two years if you store it in the fridge or in a cool cellar. Okay. In one ear, out the other. I'm not going to have a bottle of sake (laughs) lying around for two years, I guarantee you that. You don't need to worry about that too much. Um, But similar to wine... Once you open a bottle of sake, it's actually going to oxidize pretty quickly. Yeah. So you want to make sure to drink it within a short period of time. Ideally, 
within that same day. Well, we opened three bottles, Jason. I guess. Uh, I guess we're know, having a long night. <laughs> we gotta we gotta enjoy it to its fullest quality. Yeah. Or you know, if you must, you can you can drink it over the course of a week or so. It's going to be pretty good still. But past that, you're missing out on a lot of the the best qualities of that sake. Although you could use it for cooking if it gets older than that. Ah, that's a good idea. A lot of Japanese recipes, especially like teriyaki style stuff, will incorporate sake. And, you know, the flavor doesn't matter quite as much in that case. Yeah, it's always good to have some cooking sake around. Definitely. So now we know all about sake and how great it is and we want some. So where do we go to get sake? If we're in Japan. If you're in Japan, you're going to find sake all over the place. You can find it at restaurants. You can find it at bars. You can find it at izakaya, which are Japanese pubs, essentially. But depending on where you go, they might not have a huge selection. You know, it's like in in the U.S. If you go to a random restaurant, they're not going to have a huge selection of craft beers or anything like that. So if you're looking for something specific, I would recommend seeking out a specialty sake bar. They have bars that have sakes from all over the country that you can try. Sounds good. Definitely. Put it on the list for our next trip to Japan. Absolutely. It's been so long since we've been able to go. Uh, I think we're going to have to spend a year in Japan to get through our to get through our list. Yeah, it's getting more and more painful not being able to go. It is. It is. Uh, I also heard that high-end sushi restaurants are likely to have a better selection of sake than most places. It makes sense. If you go to like a fancy restaurant in the U.S., they're more likely to have an extensive whiskey list or something. Absolutely. Or you could try to get in on a celebration. Shinto purification rituals often involve sake. Sure. Um, If there's a big party for a festival or a wedding... Or there was a sports victory in the town, or even an election victory. There might be somebody that opens up a cask of sake and freely shares it with everybody as part of the celebration. That would be awesome. Uh, I recommend, I mean, I recommend everything about Shirakawago. You should totally go there. But uh, they have that Doboroku Festival where you can get this uh, you know, raw, unfiltered sake at the festival, but also even the rest of the year at that temple, they will serve you that sake just so you can see what it's like. That's pretty cool. Nice. Uh, If you want to take some sake home, or maybe you want to drink it at your hotel or in a park or whatever, because public drinking is legal in Japan, Mm -hmm. uh, you can find sake in convenience stores and supermarkets in Japan as well. It's so great being able to walk to the kombini after a long night of or a long day of running around all over the place and just being able to get sake and beer and whatever else just to relax for the last hour or two before you go to bed. I really enjoyed that about Japan. Totally. And they're so convenient. Like every hotel I've ever stayed at in Japan, there's a kombini like within a block. Yep. Yep. I was just remembering uh, the one we stayed at in Kyoto, I think. There was one right next to us, and there was one across the street, and we were like, yeah, which one do we want to go to today? Yeah. Paul, I can't wait to go back. I know. It's getting to me. Oh, another way that you can experience sake in Japan is visit one of those many breweries. Yeah, that'd be great. There are about 1,800 sake breweries in Japan, and many of those are located in those famous sake-producing regions 
like Niigata, Kobe, and Kyoto. Isn't that funny? Like over a hundred years ago, they were like, anybody can brew sake and the 30,000 breweries open up almost overnight. And uh, now it's like taxed and regulated and there's like 1,800. Yeah. Even though the population of Japan's way higher today. Yeah. It's a little sad. But we also have, I guess, scale of industry. I'm sure each brewery can produce way more than they used to be able to. Yeah. And their production methods have evolved a lot. They're, uh, you know, more efficient and they can make higher quality sake than they ever could before. Yeah. It's harder to like brew out of your bathtub and compete with the, <laughs> with the guys making the good stuff today. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these breweries will give tours. Some of them have museums in there too. Uh, but you want to check out reviews before you go if you don't speak Japanese because they may or may not have English translations or an English-speaking tour guide or whatever. Uh, also, one more thing. If you're in Japan, in mid-March, there is an annual sake fair called Sake no Jin where you can get an all-you-can-taste sake experience. Wow. Paul, you know, we've been talking about how we need to do it a spring trip to check out the cherry blossoms. We need to climb Mount Fuji. Yep. And I think we need to go to the sake festival. Okay. It's a little too early to climb Mount Fuji though, isn't it? It's like July or something. Yeah. You got to wait till later in the year. We need to do a bunch of trips and go every month of the year. Yeah. uh, I was actually just talking with my boss about Japan today and you know, he's like, Oh, you ever seen a baseball game in Japan? And I was like, no, (laughs) I haven't been in the summer. Like, I got to go to Japan in the summer sometimes so I can go to a game. Yeah. Did you tell him you did a podcast episode where you talked for an hour straight about Japanese baseball? Well, that's what we were talking about, Japan. Because I was like, I got to record my podcast tonight. He's oh, nice. like, oh, you do a podcast? What's it about? You know, and we talked for a minute. Awesome. Well, next time you see him, you better make sure that you listen to an episode and uh, tell him to give us some feedback. <laughs> yeah, so what'd you think? <laughs> yeah. I always love hearing what people think. Of all the people that need to listen to my podcast my boss is maybe not on the top of that list (laughs) yeah nah nah he's cool anyway so what if you're not in japan where do we get our sake if we're not in japan well i would say go to the biggest liquor store you can find yeah i mean in the u.s for sure a big liquor store is gonna have some sake yeah most liquor stores here don't really have a lot of sake usually it's just like a a little tiny section on the end of an aisle or something, you know? Yeah, I went to the little local liquor store and they had two options. Mm. Good options, but not a lot of options. Yeah. The bigger the store, the better your chances. Uh, or if you're lucky enough to live in a place like Los Angeles where they have a lot of Japanese markets, those would be good places to check out as well. Yeah, if you live near Little Tokyo, I think you can find some sake. Probably. Uh, you could also order sake online. The legality of this is going to depend on where you are in the world, but there are various websites that will ship sake to you. Or you could brew it at home. You could do that. You could. But yeah, there's Japanese restaurants pretty much all over the world these days, just about, right? Oh yeah. If you go to any any sushi restaurant, you're probably going to be able to find at least a few options for sake. Yeah, definitely going to have some sake. Sake, sake, sake. Oh, man, that was a fun birthday. (laughs) As much as I like sake, I was like, what's this guy going to stop squirting this sake into my (laughs) mouth? I'm running out of air here. Yeah, Yeah, I had a birthday that uh, Paul and some other great friends attended where we went to a sushi restaurant and we sat around the uh, 
hibachi grill where they, you know, they put on a show, they make the fried rice and stuff in front of you, and, and they had a bottle of sake that they're just squirting into everybody's mouth. Great time. Yeah. They brought the big mask for you to put on. Yeah, the birthday head. It's like, it's not even just a mask. It's like a whole head. Yeah, it completely covers your head. Your head. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so in case you just need that real quick guide again, to try to distill all those different grades of sake into just a couple things that you want to look for. You're going to look for that Junmai word, right? What is Junmai, Paul? Rice only. Yeah, none of that added alcohol. And then the highest grade is that Dai Ginjo. The next highest grade is Ginjo. So I would say if you, know, if you don't want to remember a whole ton of stuff about sake, but you want to make sure you're getting quality stuff, look for those three words. Junmai, Dai Ginjo, Ginjo. Yeah, and you'll have a pretty good idea of what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, unless the bottle's in a box, you generally can see how cloudy it is, if it's going to be a Nigori or not. Mm-hmm. And it'll say sparkling, if it's sparkling, you know. Just look for whatever whatever you think uh, fits your personal preferences. I'm sure you'll find something enjoyable. Yeah, just try try a few, see what you like. Mm-hmm. Is that it, Paul? Is that uh, all we got? That's, that's all I got. All right. Well, this was a fun one. Yeah, it was. I'd been excited to do this one for a while because I wanted to know about sake, and now I do. Yep. Well, if you want to see some pictures of these bottles that we tasted, let's say, I'll post some of those on Instagram. We are at SJP Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help us out, you could leave a review wherever it is that you're listening to the podcast. Uh, you could also, if you feel like helping support the podcast, you could always donate. Go to our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. There's a donate link at the top, and we would really appreciate it. Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about the Yakuza. Finally! The Japanese Mafia. Oh, I can't wait. I've been looking forward to this episode even longer than the sake episode, because... I don't know what it is. Why is organized crime so fascinating, Paul? Uh, you're into the morbid. So there's the violence and the crime. It's not just me. What about the Italian mafia? People love those movies and stuff. Goodfellas, The Godfather, they're legendary. Yeah, yeah. Hollywood did a good job of glorifying that stuff, yeah. making it fun. I don't know. What I always thought was interesting is like, there are a lot of similarities between the Italian mafia and the, and the Japanese Yakuza. Mm-hmm. But there are also a lot of pretty major differences, and that's what really interested me. Like, how are these people perceived in Japan, and what kind of role do they really play in Japanese society, you know? Yep. It's going to be an interesting one, I think. Yeah, I know you're a fan of the Yakuza games. Oh, those games are great. That's a good way to get that feeling of Japan when you can't visit Japan, because you get to run around like Tokyo and Osaka in those games, and It looks really real and uh, nostalgic for me. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening. See you next time. Welcome. Sightseeing Japan.
the podcast where we talk about drinking. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Ely. <laughs> Is that what I sound like? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, I can't do a Jason impression yet. I need to work on that. I've never tried. Huh? I've never mocked you too much before. I don't know what a Paul impression would even sound like. I mean, I wasn't trying to do a Paul voice there. I was just messing Or around. her. I'm Paul. I like <laughs> baseball and <laughs> video games. <laughs> uh, 